From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, our state is home to a unique collection of classical music composed by black women, a draw for this aspiring maestro. As a black conductor, musician, I hadn't really studied or engaged with a lot of black composers, black music, so the only step was to actually get my hands on the archives myself. Today, Kedrick Armstrong's quest to bring these composers more recognition and his own classical music journey. I see myself on the podium as being a conduit from the energy of the orchestra to the audience. I see the sound, you know, shoot right through me to the audience. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand Junction, Boulder, Highlands Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It's likely you've never heard this piece of music before. In fact, it's almost a certainty. Sinfonietta is an orchestral piece in three movements by Irene Britton Smith, Like any number of black female composers, she never really got her due. The conductor here, who gave the piece its first public performance late last year, is trying to change that. At the podium is Kedrick Armstrong, who's originally from South Carolina, then moved to Chicago, and now is doing graduate work in Boulder at the University of Colorado. The Washington Post says Armstrong is taking a lead role in confronting issues of diversity, or lack thereof, in classical conservatory curriculum. I met him on the CU campus in the library, which houses a very special collection. Kedrick, what are these boxes in front of you? These are boxes of music from the Helen Walker Hill Collection here at the University of Colorado Boulder. And these boxes contain some of the most brilliant music by black female composers. And much of the music in these boxes, crazy enough, has never been heard by public ears. And you have helped change that because in the introduction we heard Sinfonietta. Yes. And, and you, in fact, have the sheet music yes. for that piece in front of you. Right in front of me is a facsimile of the manuscript of Irene Britton Smith's Sinfonietta. Irene Britton Smith was a Chicago public school teacher. She lived from 1907 to 1999, I believe, and spent most of her life in the education system and worked as a, an early childhood educator. Um, and somehow had time to compose? In her free time. It was something that she did in the summers where she could steal time away. In her off time from teaching, yeah, she worked as a composer. And it, she never considered herself to be a composer. 
but she studied with some of the greatest, like Nadia Boulanger, who is kind of this godmother of 20th century music, who was in Paris and teaching a lot of brilliant composers like Aaron Copland and Bernstein and even wow. some of the greatest that we know, Stravinsky. Irene Brenton Smith studied with her. She was friends with a lot of the black composers of that time. This is a manuscript from her master's thesis project that she got when she was in her 50s. She did a master's degree at DePaul University, and this was her master's thesis project that never had been played until this past year. Tell us what Sinfonietta means to you and what you feel when you hear it. Yeah, Sinfonietta to me, there is often this idea when we think of black music that lives in jazz and gospel and hip-hop and R&B. And we expect that, I think, even when we think about black classical composers. We expect to see and hear those influences, the influences of the spiritual, the influence of sort of black music that we think of in early America. Irene Brenton Smith in this Sinfonietta kind of departs from that largely sonically that we think of. It's really based in sort of her European study and her engagement with the art form of orchestral music and it's truly the form and craftsmanship that you see in her composition. I hear you saying, don't pigeonhole yes. black composers, yes. classical composers. Yes. And this is uh, May 1956. I'm looking at the cover sheet. Yes. So, okay, mid-50s. Yes. I'm trying to think of the state of the country, Mm. of the state of black folk in 1956. Uh, Not that it's easy today, but it was awfully difficult, I have to imagine, as she was putting pen to paper. Absolutely. You know, when you think about, especially in Chicago, and I think that is, for Irene Brent Smith, such an important thing. She's a black woman in Chicago in 1956. She's grown up in kind of the, I like to think of it as the Chicago black renaissance. You know, we always think of the Harlem renaissance. But there was also this vibrant music scene going on in the life of black people in Chicago at that time. So around this time, you have composers like Florence Price, who was the first black woman to ever have a piece performed by a major symphony orchestra, which was done by the Chicago Symphony, Mm. early 1900s, I believe. And so Irene Brenton Smith is seeing all of this and is witnessing this and seeing this sort of renaissance of black musicians having a voice and having power. And so she's operating in that. And what's so, I think, painful for me as a black person living today is to know that that legacy was lost, right? She was amongst all of this great work, but her herself, her own voice, you know, is something that we are now just beginning to scratch the surface of. And you are helping scratch that surface. (laughs) This collection, three boxes sit before you of the Helen Walker Hill collection here at CU Boulder. And this was something of a magnet for you coming to Colorado. Do I have that right? Absolutely. This was the only reason that I ended up in Colorado. I was living and working in Chicago. 
uh, around 2020, the pandemic happened, uh, civil unrest of George Floyd. All of us were kind of, I think, reconciling our life and our work and our vocation. And for me, as a black conductor, musician, I realized at that point in my life that I hadn't really studied or engaged with a lot of black composers, black music. I had, you know, gone through all of my music schooling and couldn't really remember ever playing a piece by a black composer, studying a piece by a black composer, and so started to do a lot of digging on my own, and that digging led to this collection. So I was in Chicago for about a year looking at this collection, plotting and planning, and just trying to figure out how to get my hands on it. And Is, is it digitized? Like, could, what, how much of it could you see remotely? Yeah, so a lot of it I couldn't. So I was really looking at a list of names and pieces. That was really it. Pages and pages of composers' names, many of that I had never heard of before, hmm. and just list of pieces of music that they had written. And as I was Googling and trying to find recordings and performances, that's when I realized that most of it had never been played even, had never been published had never been recorded. So my, you know, the only step was to actually come and get my hands on the archives myself. Do you have to wear gloves? Luckily, with this collection, not really. Not really, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And you identify as a conductor. Yes. And that's what you're studying at CU Boulder. Yes. But integrating this archive as well into your studies. You know, when you began to describe the collection dedicated to black female composers... My first thought was, if you ask 10 people, name a black female composer, nine might be hard-pressed to come up with a name. Yeah. You were hard-pressed to come up with a name. And I think you reflected that there was maybe some embarrassment or some shame associated with that. But of course, you're a product of a bigger culture and society in which these names aren't necessarily taught or played. Right. Do you want to reflect on that a little for me? Hmm, yeah. For me, it was very interesting transitioning from the life that I grew up. I grew up in South Carolina, in Georgetown, South Carolina, as a gospel church pianist. That was the beginning of my musical career. And there was this interesting moment when I chose the clarinet and decided to kind of dedicate my life to classical music that I felt that I had to part with this part of me that was, you know, my musical being since birth, you Mm. know, to fit into sort of the classical music, to achieve a level of success in classical music. I had to dedicate my life to classical music. And in that conversation, these composers, musicians of color, composers of color, weren't really prevalent in that conversation. And so, yeah, there was a lot of shame, I think, around 2020 when I started to unearth a lot of these composers and realized that these were names that I had never heard of before, music that I had never witnessed before and a breath of legacy that had really been lost in sort of the music scholarship. So it occurs to me that if you had known of these names earlier, you might not have felt such a kind of violent tear away from your roots to your pursuit of classical music. Absolutely. It might have been affirmation that that was a path others had taken. Yes. And that you were following in the footsteps of. Yes. And what was so beautiful was that happened, you know, as I was beginning to learn about the lives and the stories of uh, many of these composers and see the breadth and diversity just within the realm of black composers, 
I started to begin to see myself. I could piece together my experience and the intersection of being a classical musician and a black person in, in America, you know, started to be answered by a lot of these composers. And that was such a, I think, gratifying experience for me as an individual. I want to listen to more music with you. <laughs> will, will you pick another piece from the collection? Absolutely. You know, one of the pieces that was so, I think, pivotal for me was Julia Perry's Stabat Mater. And this is a piece that she wrote for a solo singer and string orchestra. And to be very honest, that was one of the first pieces that I heard from this collection. You know, in the beginning of my research and study, Julia Perry's Stabat Mater uh, uh, was written for herself. She was not only a composer, she was a singer and a conductor. And, and oh. so she toured this piece all over Europe and in Italy and France and sang it and conducted and was a, an advocate for the piece herself. And the first time I heard it, it struck me because it reminded me of some of the greatest kind of 20th century voices that we think of, you know, Dmitry Shostakovich, uh, Bella Bartok, composers who really deal with tonality in a very interesting way. They kind of break the modes of tonality to speak. And hearing Stabat Mater, hearing a black woman in all of her power exercise those same compositional skills in such a crafted way that wasn't just craft for craftsman's sake, you know. It really spoke to the soul of who she was, and I, I just absolutely love that piece. Did some of these composers find more success abroad than they did domestically? Most of them did, uh -huh. and it's really fascinating, and I think that goes even beyond the classical conversation. You know, we think of the musicians, Miles Davis, and, and you know, I can go on and on of these iconic black jazz musicians. I mean, I think of Josephine Baker, Josephine too. Josephine Baker, you know, um, I think of, of, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on names now, but of course. We could go as contemporary as Tina Turner if we yes. wanted, you know, yes. who, who kind of found a different life for herself in Europe. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's this, I think, this great conversation of musicians being able to find a level of freedom. You know, even a writer, James Baldwin, is someone who mm. I'm constantly going back to right now. And I'm constantly thinking about that conversation of how he, as a black writer, 
could find his freedom to truly write how he wanted to write without confines when he was abroad. And I think for many of these composers, you know, Irene Brent Smith, Julia Perry, two that I think of off the bat, the styles and the, the music that they were engaging in writing abroad, they weren't labeled, you know, as black composers. They were composers. Yeah. They, were, they were engaging in the material that everyone else was engaging with, and they didn't have to have that weight of black music travel with them in their own compositional styles. Our conversation with the young black conductor Kedrick Armstrong continues shortly. He's doing graduate work at CU Boulder, largely because of the school's collection of classical music written by black women. We'll get into Armstrong's journey as a conductor after a break, which began when he was in the fifth grade. It involves a teacher, his mom, and Celine Dion. Right now, you're hearing Josephine Baker. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There are a lot of personal stories we don't hear. And I just started crying in the middle of the store. From people and places that are just around the corner and just beyond sight. I'm Luis Antonio Perez. I'm on a mission to find these stories in Colorado and share them with you. The fire has given me resolve for prioritizing my life. My Story So Far is a new podcast from Colorado Public Radio that brings you personal stories from around the state. Find My Story So Far wherever you get podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to the special collections room at the CU Boulder Library, where I met the young conductor Kedrick Armstrong. He's been doing graduate work at CU, largely because the school hosts the Helen Walker Hill Collection, the largest collection of classical music composed by black women. Armstrong shared some of their stories. Now, more about his own. How did you know you wanted to be a conductor? Because you had been exposed, uh, I think you said clarinet? Yes. And piano? Yes. Mm-hmm. How does it come to you to be a conductor? Yeah, conducting, funny enough, has been something that I think has always been a part of me, but I didn't really have a name for it in the beginning. Oh. One of my first experiences conducting, quote-unquote, um, was in fifth grade. I remember working with the fifth grade music class to learn this Celine Dion song that I had rearranged for our fifth grade class to sing at the commencement ceremony. And what Celine Dion song is um, this? Because You Loved Me. Because You Loved Me. <laughs> that we, I, I rewrote with my mom, the help of my mom, shout out to my mom, Because You Helped Me. And it was dedicated to the fifth grade teachers. And I will remember sitting in class at the piano 
teaching the fifth grade class this song behind the piano as a fifth grader, coaching a trio of soloists in my free time as a fifth grader. And for me, it was always about facilitating the music making process. That Mm. was something that I was always interested in as a musician, facilitating the collaboration of musicians. And that was something that was always more prevalent as a conductor than, you know, as a clarinet player sitting behind, you know, in the back of the orchestra playing the clarinet. How did the teachers react to the song? Because you helped me. They loved it. You know, it's what's even crazier is I recently did a concert back in South Carolina and ran into, saw my fifth grade music teacher again for the first time in like over a decade. And we shared this moment again, you know, this song, Because You Helped Me. And as a fifth grader, I don't think I realized, you know, what I was <laughs> telling my teachers. But, you know, looking back on that experience all these years later, you know, that song and those words still ring true. And for so many of those teachers, you know, they're still a part of my life, even if it's just following me on social media or me just reaching out to them when I get back home. But yeah. I think about that and that experience and the empowerment that they gave me as a fifth grader all the time. Well, and your mother played a role, as you said, because you had co-adapted, if you will, um, (laughs) the Celine Dion song with her. Yes. Do you want to talk about her influence? Oh, my goodness. My mother, she is one of the first champions of me as a musician. I grew up in an athletic family. All of my family members were athletes, are athletes. Oh, that can be hard. <laughs> I, I'm speaking as someone whose stepfather was his little league coach. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Luckily, I was excused <laughs> from the sporting uh, events. And that is mainly because, I, as they tell me, I came out of the womb a musician. And my mother poured every resource that she knew growing up in Georgetown, South Carolina. There wasn't a lot of things, but we were really lucky and really blessed to have amazing music teachers and amazing school system. And my mother would cart me from lesson to lesson, from school event to school event. My mother and father, you know, I'm so lucky for both of them, infusing my life with this thing that I loved, even when they didn't really know much about what the future would hold for me. How many prominent black conductors are at podiums today? That is a good question. You know, I think if I were to think about that question five years ago, I'd be hard-pressed to find names. Uh I'm really lucky, and I think the field is lucky, that there's change happening. And so there are actually a good number of Black conductors who are kind of trailblazing right now and have been. You know, I think of the late Paul Freeman, who was a kind of secondary mentor of mine. I was a fellow uh, in the Chicago Sinfonietta, which is an orchestra that he started, Black Conductor. And not only did he start this orchestra, Paul Freeman also had one of the most illustrious recording uh, records uh, and, and mainly recording undiscovered Black composers. Mm. You know, he had an entire... Uh, series that he ran recording the lost music of black composers. And that was a huge inspiration for me embarking on this project. I think of the late Michael Morgan, who recently passed away, um, who I got to meet and work with, who ran Oakland Symphony for 30 years. And the influence he had not only in my life, but in the entire network, I think of, you know, most black musicians that I know of working in the field right now, 
can tell a Michael Morgan story about how he was influential in their hmm. life. Um, so it's hard in a lot of ways because there is not a lot in the public eye. You know, when we think of the maestros of yeah. Americas, yeah. we don't necessarily think of black conductors, but more and more they are popping up on podiums and that is leading to this long legacy of discovering their work on podiums for decades and centuries gone. I think that there are caricatures of conductors. <laughs> I don't know if I'm like thinking of my Looney Tunes exposure as a kid. Absolutely. I mean, I've certainly interviewed actual conductors, not cartoons, <laughs> but but there is this sense of like, they're exacting. Maybe they're mean. Mm. The movie Tar has certainly given us a picture of what a conductor might do and be. How would you describe your style? Hmm. Are you... <laughs> this is a good question. Are you mean? No. <laughs> Luckily, I I've been told imagine. that I'm not mean. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I will I will trust my musician's words on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I think there it's been very interesting I think for me being, you know, in the age that I am and kind of seeing this shift, you know, from the day and age the you know the Toscaninis, the Fitzreiners, you know, these conductors who did kind of have this control and power, this authoritarian sort of idea of who they were and how they worked as a conductor. And I don't think it works anymore. I don't, I don't think musicians respond well to that. I don't think they play their best under those circumstances. I like to take the approach of being a collaborator amongst colleagues, especially for me at the age that I'm at right now. You know, I'm often professionally... But what age? 28. 28? <laughs> 28. I'm often working with people who, you know, have been playing their instrument for that long, you know? So who am I wow. to show up on the podium and to tell someone else how to do the thing? Um, so it, it works so much better for me when I can bring what I have, what I know, what I've studied, what I've learned, you know, the perspective that I have about a piece, you know, which I think every conductor is responsible for having a perspective and listening to the what the orchestra gives me, you know. Maybe we phrase it like the first clarinet wants to phrase it. I never thought of doing it that way because I haven't been playing my instrument that long. So how can I collaborate with the musicians so that they all feel that they have ownership in the final product? So I like to think of my job as a, you know, a conductor, going back to that fifth grade story, you know, how do I just facilitate the music making process to make sure that the musicians can work and operate at the highest of their ability and not disturb it? Huh. Is there room for discipline in that? Because that, that also risks having so many cooks in the kitchen. Yes. Right? If every musician in the orchestra sees themselves... Well, it sounds wonderful for all of them to see themselves as as part of shaping the vision, right. of course. But my, that could be like herding cats. Exactly. You know, and I think this is this is the magic and also the mystery of being a conductor because it's a both and. You know, like I can't just show up to the rehearsal and say, "Do your okay, thing, you know, have at it, yeah. have fun." You know, there and there is still this idea that no matter what happens when I step on the podium, I have the last say. So. You know, and so I think knowing the power of the position allows me to be able to operate in this collaborator kind of concept. I know that when I step on a podium, people are looking for me to take control. You know, I know that the final decision of will this passage be loud or soft, faster or slower, like that stops with me and uh-huh. they will listen to whatever I, I say and suggest to them. 
That process goes so much better when I can be in the room what is most needed for me at the time. And that, you know, requires adaptability on my end. I can walk into an orchestra and kind of immediately tell, oh, this orchestra really wants me to, like, be the authoritarian. Mm. Like, they want me to make the decisions. And oftentimes, you know, if I have a quick rehearsal process... I have to do that. There is no other way behind it. The thing has to get fixed. It has to be done this way. You have to be very quick to size up a group of people. Yes. And as quick as I size them up, they will also size Uh up. You know, and so knowing that it works both ways, I think, takes the edge off. They want to play their best. I want the best product out of them. We all want to give the best concert. So how do we make that happen? How do I make that happen? If the room is really hot, then I have to cool down. If the room is really cool, then I have to turn the heat up, you know. So how do I best facilitate it? And that often means, you know, putting on the very strict hat sometimes and then having fun. But truly trying to be myself, in all of that. I'm never trying to be the authoritarian just because that's what conductors do mm-hmm. or be the chill, fun guy because that's what the orchestra wants. It's how do I best you know, bring my full self to the podium each time and have a great music-making experience with the generous musicians in front of me. When I'm nervous, I sweat. Yes. And like I'll leave, sometimes I'll leave the studio with just like giant rings under my <laughs> arms, like armpits. How does your body show that you're nervous? Ooh. Just because when, when you were describing what it is to be an age that is the same length of time some of the musicians have been playing their instruments, yeah. I have to think that's incredibly intimidating. It may not be for you. Maybe you don't get nervous. But when, when, if you do, how does it manifest? Yeah. For the record, I do. <laughs> I get very nervous. I get shaky. I get very shaky. Um, and Which, that has to be tough if you're conducting. It is. It is. And I will say, you know, I think it's very easy for us to kind of like, oh, this job is easy and it's great. And I get on the podium and I wave my arms. But, I, you know, I've been working at CU and for a lot of my life, to develop, you know, strategies and techniques to kind of help me in those moments to calm down and to be at peace. To be still. Yes, which is hard because you get on the podium and a million things are going on in your brain, you know, at once. You have 80 musicians all playing at you and you have to interpret all of the sounds and get it all balanced and get it right. All of 80 personalities to deal with. You got the composer who might be dead or alive, you know, in your back ear, just kind of haunting you. So there's all of these things. And so it's how do you find this peace and this calm internally? And Is it a mantra? What is it? Is it like a focal point? For me, it's about breath. And uh-huh. it's about realizing that it's not about me. 
you know? And for me, this, this is why I chose conducting. I hated being a clarinet player. I hated performing. I hated being the person on the stage with every eye on me. And no matter how much I told myself, people weren't looking at me and judging me and staring at me. Like, you couldn't tell me that an audience of, you know, 70 people aren't, like, looking at me playing my clarinet, you know? As a conductor, there's this sort of freedom that I feel where if I trust the musicians, it's all about trust. If I really trust them, I'm not nervous. I'm uh-huh. less nervous. Does it help to have your back to all of the people? For me. To, to the audience? For me, yes. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. And for me, it allows me to do the thing that I love to do the most is be a conduit. You know, I see myself on the podium as being a conduit from the energy of the orchestra to the audience. I see the sound, you know, shoot right through me and go out to the audience. And so, oh, you're like a prism. Yes. A sound a sort prism. Of, a sort of prism, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and for me, it's always about this idea of recognizing that the orchestra, whether I like it or not, can function without me. A really good orchestra doesn't need me. They can, they, can, they can play without me, you know. Uh, a lot of the professional groups that I conduct, you know, I can give a downbeat and walk off and they would be perfectly fine. That to me is absolutely thrilling in a sort of way because if I have done my job well in the rehearsal process, that is where we should be. You know, they should be able to collaborate in a way where they are considering what I give them on the day of the performance and not relying on me to get through it. In a way, the better you do leading up to the performance, the less you are required for the performance. It takes a little of the pressure off. Yeah. In my mind, at least. The final part of our conversation with the up-and-coming conductor, Kedrick Armstrong, when Colorado Matters continues. What's it like to do his graduate work, studying black female composers, in Boulder, a school and a city that has struggled with diversity and inclusion? And why is the Helen Walker Hill Collection at CU? I'm Ryan Warner with producer Anthony Cotton, and this is CPR News and KRCC. How you understand a story can really depend on who is telling it. CPR News and Denver 7 have teamed up to bring you stories of people in underserved communities on Real Talk. I'm Nathan Heffel. And I'm Micah Smith. Get unique, in-depth perspectives from people not often heard on the news. Real people, real voices, Real Talk. Fridays at 3.30 and Mondays at 6.30 here on CPR News and KRCC. The history of classical music looks awfully white. But it's not that musicians of color haven't made classical music. It's that often they haven't gotten their due. A young conductor who spent much of his career in Chicago, Kedrick Armstrong, is dedicated to changing that. He chose to do his graduate work at CU Boulder, which has a -a one-of-a-kind collection of pieces composed by black women. I met him in the special collections and archive room in the school's library, More about the collection in a little bit. First, let's get back to exploring Armstrong's own journey and hopes. Dream job. Wow. Like where (laughs) you really, really dream. 
where do you see yourself? I, I guess I mean literally. Yeah. Like, is there a hall? Is there a city? Is there a symphony orchestra? I hate to be this person, uh-huh. but I've always, the dream has been, and I think will always be to make music with people who love it as much as I do. And for me, that doesn't live in a city, that doesn't live in a hall. It's place neutral. Yeah, it's uh-huh. place neutral, but it's experience rich. I think for me, the experience of the music making is the dream. You know, I want to make music with people who are as passionate, not just about, you know, playing on stage and sounding good, but truly being cultivators of, you know, cultural competency wherever they live. And that is, to me, as much as the dream of music making mm. as conducting at Carnegie Hall. I think I would rather be in community-rich musical experiences than to be in, you know, lauded halls just for the sake, the sake of, of it. Yeah, exactly. Although it wouldn't be, you know, too shabby no. if those two <laughs> things happened at the same time. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Di- a little Disney hall yes. and the meaning yes. of the music. Yes. What are you learning at CU Boulder? Like what, where, how have you grown here? Mm. That is hard to answer because it is still an ongoing process. But I will say this. One of the things that I have learned and am learning is the importance of defining your work. Mm. I don't think it's enough to just be good, to sound good, to play good music. I think you have to have this sort of inner definition to who you are and the work that you do and, and what meaning it has for the people that you live amongst, not just society as this esoteric, like I wanna make the world a better place, but how are you influencing the community that you are engaged with right now? Are you looking for that? Are you searching for that still? Yes, Uh yes, I'm searching for it, and in some ways I already have it. You know, I think one of the greatest things that I gained from the, you know, the time that I spent in Chicago was this network, this great family of musicians and musicians who are in a lot of the same ways dealing with the things that I'm dealing with, this conversation of self, who we are, you know, as minority musicians and what is our role in kind of advocacy in classical music and being at CU has given me this deeper understanding of, you know, I can plant myself in the ground and kind of stake my terms as far as this is what I believe, this is how I want to make music, and the world will listen, you know, and the world wants to hear something new. You know, classical music really isn't dead, and I hate to use that cliche, but I think CU has kind of taught me that, that, you know, people are interested in a black female composer who wrote a piece in 1956 that no one's ever heard before. Mm. You know, there can be interest and an outside want for this material. You know, it's also true that CU Boulder has struggled with diversity. It's not a very black university. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, let, like, let's, can we put it yes, pl- plainly? Yes, let's okay. be honest. How does that feel? My family always instilled this sense of you take yourself into the room and you, you are the best self that you can be in that room. Coming to see you, coming to Colorado, it was not lost on me that I was going to do this amazing research in black music in Boulder, Colorado. You know, and anytime I think I tell people about this research project, they're like, in Colorado of all places. And I think that is to say that, you know, the history of black people 
lives everywhere, you know, that there is black music, that there's black people, that there's a black legacy in the entire DNA and fabric of America. Mm. And, you know, even at CU Boulder, I think it is easy for me as, you know, a transplant coming from South Carolina, spending time in Chicago to kind of engage with this archive and want to just pack my bags and leave. But for me, it's always been that question of, you know, how do I connect this even deeper here in Colorado? How do I engage with the legacy of black composers and black artists in Colorado? Mary Watkins is a name that comes to mind, uh, who's born and raised, I believe, in in Colorado, a Denver native, uh, living uh, a black female composer. So, you know, in this, it's never that, you know, Irene Brent Smith and Julia Perry, they live in these corners on a map. You know, this is an entire network of composers. So, even being in, you know, a predominantly white place, an institution like Colorado, you know, Boulder, Colorado, I think it's so important to dig into the legacy and the richness of black people and diverse peoples, no matter where you are. Watkins wrote an opera about Emmett Till. You can listen to our conversation with her at CPR.org. Well, I, I think maybe we could wrap up with Helen Walker Hill. Yes. For whom this collection is named. Yes. How did it come to be in Boulder? Do you want to share just a few words before we go? Absolutely. So this is, I think, such an amazing tidbit. So Helen Walker Hill was married to George Walker. And George Walker was the first black composer to ever receive a Pulitzer Prize for composition. A phenomenal, amazing, brilliant voice in classical music, George Walker. Amazing pianist as well. And so through that marriage... Uh, she was interested, she became interested in herself in kind of the breadth of black composers. And mainly, she knew a lot of the women in George's life, um, not as composers. She just knew them as George's colleagues. And so from her own kind of study and wanting to teach her students, you know, a more diverse and equitable curriculum, she started to reach out to these women. She started to ask, well, what do you have for piano that I can possibly teach my students? You know, what do you have, you know, music-wise that, you know, we could use here at the university? This is, again, in Boulder. Yeah, Yeah, in Boulder. So she started to just do a lot of this work herself. And at that time that she was compiling this collection, and there's an amazing book that she wrote from spirituals to symphonies, uh, African-American female voices in classical music, I believe is the title. And she interviewed, traveled, gathered, you know, manuscripts from people's closets. She kind of put all of this together. And upon her passing, you know, we are so lucky that CU Boulder has held on and been able to continue advocating this collection. Kedrick, are there times when you're touching the pages where you think, oh, our thumbprints might have overlapped there? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, one of the most, I think, beautiful moments for me was in doing the research for Irene Britton Smith's Symphonietta, discovering her scrapbooks, like her actual scrap notes from her student days at the university and seeing her sketches, like the dreams of what she thought that this Symphonietta, this, you know, three movement work for orchestra could be and just seeing the beginnings of it. And then witnessing the premiere of that, you know, being able to conduct the premiere of that performance, you know, just this past year. So being connected to that legacy, I think, is I don't take it lightly, even from just the the scrap pieces of paper. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks so much for having me. And for meeting us in this sacred space. (laughs) Absolutely. It's been a pleasure.
Conductor Kedrick Armstrong, who met us at the CU Boulder Library, which houses the Helen Walker Hill Collection, dedicated to black female composers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As Colorado intensifies its push towards electric cars, who will service them? Some students in the Cherry Creek School District hope to be part of a new generation of auto mechanics. And they're getting a head start in high school. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine recently visited the Cherry Creek Innovation Campus. I'm making sure all the wires are disconnected. I think you're good. Students hover over a car. Not just any car. They're strategizing on how to remove a lithium-ion battery out of an electric vehicle. Teacher Brian Manley says this special program will make these students ready for good-paying jobs right when they graduate. So they're learning not just the wiring, but also how the inverter works from the high voltage to low voltage, the traction motor that they're going to take out in a little bit here and then all the basic chassis structures, so things they've done already. Suspension the electric steering. vehicle is a new experience for the students. There are just a few moving parts, around 20 versus 2,000 in a gas-powered car. Electric vehicles need far less maintenance and repair than conventional combustion engines. But senior Caden Mallet says they'll still need repairs. You still have your brakes, your tires, your tie rod ends, all that mechanical stuff that has to do with the steering. That's still involved within the car. There's different tools and training. Governor Jared Polis has a goal of 940,000 EVs on the road by 2030. With us having this experience in this class, we're already getting a jump start on other technicians that haven't worked on electric vehicles and they don't know the schematics. This modern auto body shop is part of a state-of-the-art campus in the Cherry Creek School District. Is that all? Students can enroll in one of seven pathways, like business services, IT, tourism, infrastructure engineering, aviation, or automotives. They learn real-world technical skills while continuing to take classes at their home high school. Uh, where's that? It's right down here where that coast goes to. In this class, students first master gas-powered cars, the brakes, steering, suspension, then move to hybrids, then all-electric vehicles. They first learn off a schematic, a spaghetti-like drawing of colorful wires that student William Schimberg seems to know like the back of his hand. This is the controller, which takes in the high voltage and then uses the low voltage signals. William says this innovation center opened up possibilities for him. People can come in here and before they go to college or they decide on trade school, they can decide if they want 
to do this for the rest of their life. This is a huge eye-opener rather than just learning about an experience through the classroom. William wants to study mechanical engineering after he graduates and work in the automotive sector. I can use my knowledge of taking cars apart to know how to better design them. Caden, meantime, wants to be a diesel mechanic. It means a lot to me that I get to come here every other day for three hours and basically work with my hands. But not every high school or district has the resources to give kids the skills so many want and so many employers are looking for. For Bo Martin, regular high school classes were always hard, especially history and English. He struggled. I was always like in the class, the quiet, like someone who just didn't know what he was doing in class and came here, I found my friends and got to work. Not all students learn the same way. And for Bo, learning hands-on through failure is what makes it stick. Mr. Manley is a great teacher. He'll let us fail and then try again and then fail. It's through trial and error. That's how I prefer to learn. Like once you get it, after failing so many times, it'll stick with you longer. Teacher Manley recalls after a project where students built cardboard hydraulic lifts out of syringes, a student turned to him and said, now the science, Pascal's law, the principles of fluid transfer, makes sense. So those little aha moments, those little light bulb moments, they happen a lot around here, especially with science and physics. They get to see it, touch it, feel it, hear it, smell it, how it affects the vehicle when it's running. It's striking to watch a class like this because Manley stands back and lets the students work, struggle, learn, figure out problems on their own before he steps in. And when they do argue, Mel, it's, as teenagers do, I think you're good. Resolving that conflict is an invaluable skill that employers want. As class winds down, though the electric vehicles are super cool, it's still fun to let visiting eighth graders hear a different kind of engine. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Anthony Cotton, Tyler Bender, and Michael Hughes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.